If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 12 will be in verses 35 through 48 in our time together this morning. Luke in chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a scripture journal, you want one. Uh, those are on the welcome desk out there. Um, you go grab one now if you'd like. Uh, usually we say they're $4 American, but just go get it, all right? Just take it, okay? Um, but we'll be in Luke 12 as we continue our study through this rich gospel. Uh, it'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke and chapter 12 from 35 to 48. The Holy Spirit says, Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed and in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom was given of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. It starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes and aeroplanes, and Lenny Bruce is not afraid. Birthday party, cheesecake, jelly bean, vermouth. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. These perhaps vaguely familiar words are some of the lyrics found in a 1987 song released by a band actually from Athens, Georgia, called R.E.M. How many of you have actually knew what I was talking about? Excellent. Y'all looked at me like, what? The song is, but you always look at me like that, right? So the song is about what it explicitly says, right? Which is the end of the world. Uh, if you've heard it, you've probably heard it in a movie that was uh, also dealing with some cataclysmic event that either threatened to bring about the end of the world or was set in like a post-apocalyptic wasteland and followed survivors of what appeared to be the end of humanity. Well, such films have existed from nearly the entire uh, history of filmmaking, but have seemingly picked up in frequency in the last few decades, you know, what kind of movies I'm talking about, right? Like Independence Day, where Will Smith punches an alien. 
uh, Deep Impact, Armageddon, San Andreas, I Am Legend, 2000, or 2012, and even one of the most popular shows of the moment, The Last of Us, all deal with the end of humanity. And they draw millions of viewers to the box office and in front of television screens. You know, in total, there have been over 250 movies about the end of the world. And over 100 of those have been released since the year 2000. We can't help but ask, why? Why is there an obsession from the religious and irreligious alike in contemplating the end? Russell Moore suggests that there's something embedded in the human conscience that knows there's a day of reckoning. In the heart of God, he says, has implanted a witness to the coming judgment. I think that's why every culture tells stories, sings songs, makes movies, and television shows about the end of it all. If what Dr. Moore says is right, which he is, there's something embedded in the human heart that knows that time is linear, that it's going somewhere, that human life on earth won't last forever. You know, the problem with these films and shows is that God is rarely the one who brings about the end. Michael Nicholson says, the end of the world is almost never a divine judgment or even a destiny descending from a transcendent realm. Never, never a heaven-brought or God-wrought reality. God, in fact, is uh, conspicuous by his absence in the vast majority of pop apocalypses. Instead, the end of the world is threatened by man-made, natural, or alien invasion disasters. And almost always, the end of the world can be, and usually is, averted by human imagination and determination. The almost end of the world becomes the occasion to congratulate ourselves for our indomitable human spirit. Even still, we can't help but to be fascinated by the fact that even non-religious people produce and subsequently consume media that focuses on life itself ending. We can't help but to think about the end. And I wonder, how often do you think about the end? Infinitely more importantly, Jesus wants to know, how often do you think about the end? In fact, that's the very focus of the text that we're considering this morning, isn't it? And you know something interesting about that R.E.M. song that I quoted at first? You know, even though it's, if you listen to it, it's like an upbeat song. The band intended for the listener to be reflective when they heard it. And so they expected the listener to receive it with like a sober disposition. But you know, that the band was quickly dismayed when the fans of their shows would dance and party and mosh to the song and receive it almost with joy and celebration. And you know, the thing about what Jesus says in our text this morning is he not only wants us to live every day with the end in view, but he's telling us that there will be two groups of people in the end, those who receive it with joy and celebration, and those who will find the day to be a dark day of grim judgment. But for both groups, the end should be a sobering reality. On the surface... The previous teachings from Jesus that precede this one appear to be disconnected, right? Right before this text, if you just look up in your Bibles, Jesus warns us to not be greedy or covetous, then not to worry or be anxious, and then all of a sudden, he's talking about the end of the age with his reward and judgment. What do these have to do with each other? Well, since Jesus warned us against greed, because greediness is a failure to trust God, right? and then warned us of worry because that too is a failure to trust God, now he's telling us how trusting God expresses itself. Okay, He's showing us another reason 
why we should live in light of the age to come rather than for the present age and how that ought to influence us. Indeed, a reason why in verse 21 that we, he, he said not to be like the rich fool was because the wise person lays up treasure where? In heaven. And a reason he said not to worry is because we receive the kingdom where our treasure is again in heaven and is imperishable. So now he tells his disciples even more explicitly to live for the end, to live with an eye on eternity. Now, before we get into the ways that we could live in the world, we need to establish some facts that Jesus gives us, okay? The biggest fact is that Jesus is going to return, and he will judge the living and the dead. You and I are living between advents. We are living between the first coming of Christ in his incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, and his second advent that will be the end of the age, vindicate where he vindicates the righteous and cats out casts out the wicked and sets up his eternal kingdom in fullness. So you and I live in light of the fact of the first advent, advent with eager anticipation of the second. What Jesus wants us to do is live like he has come and lived and died and resurrected and ascended, which of course he has. But he also wants us to live in light of his return. Time truly is linear and it centers on a person. And his name is Jesus. So to live wisely is to live in light of both these advents. Another important fact is that Jesus is going to return at a time no one is going to expect. Isn't that what he says here? No one knows when the second advent will come. No one knows when Jesus will return to close out the age. Jesus says that he will come like a thief in the night. And thieves typically do not announce the hour of their coming in advance, do they? So Jesus will come in a time that no one can predict. What this is supposed to create, the unexpected nature of his return, is not anxiety but hope. If all time is leading to the return of the king, who will make everything right, why wouldn't we constantly look forward to his coming and our, live our lives in light of that glorious day? Why wouldn't we? Our hope is secured. Time is going somewhere. And it's set and centered on Jesus the Christ who will make all things new and make every sad thing come untrue. Now, over the last 150 years, there's been an increase among Christians on when Jesus will return. Hasn't there? On the timing and the signs that we think will precede that coming. Christians have spent millions of dollars on hundreds of books that claim to have some insight on how everything is going to go down. And we have done this to such an extent that we've lost Focus on his return because we're too busy trying to figure out when exactly that will be. But that's not what Jesus is calling for here or anywhere else. He's not calling for us to make charts and graphs and do the math to see if we can predict the year of his coming. He's not calling for us to set up notifications on our phone for breaking news to see if the headline somehow points to another fulfillment of prophecy. It misses the point, even if it's well-meaning. Further, it causes not increase in hope, but more anxiety. Since it makes one re reliant on headlines as we constantly ask, is this it? Is this another sign? You know this is true, right? Every war we ask, is this the uh, Armageddon? Right? Russia invades Ukraine. World War III, right? This is the end, right? We, uh, everything is the mark of the beast. Remember barcodes came out and everybody said, mark of the beast? 
We said, scan things uh, at the self-checkout, mark of the beast. Vaccine, mark of the beast. We're not supposed to be doing that. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is calling for. David Turner says it like this. Jesus' is teaching that his coming will be unexpected exposes the folly of those who link end times alertness to the latest news. There are some who constantly scrutinize world events, especially the latest news from the Middle East, searching for prophetic fulfillments that signal the end. Such voices wax and wane in direct proportion to recent news from Israel. But moments of increased tension may be less likely to pretend Jesus' is coming than days of prosperity and tranquility. In any event, he says, in whatever world events arise, Jesus' disciples must constantly be about their master's business, vigilantly awaiting his coming. End times correctness is ultimately a matter of ethics, not speculation. There's a story in the travels of Gulliver where the author, Jonathan Swift, tells of a people on this floating island of Lupita, and they have this advanced knowledge of science. They, they have a special interest in astronomy especially. But that knowledge, what it does is it causes them to be in constant fear, fear of the world ending due to some cosmic event, like the earth being swallowed up by the sun or a comet directly hitting earth and reducing it to ashes. But what this does to these people is it strips them of joy from life because they're constantly in dread. Jonathan Swift writes, these people are under continual disquietedness, never enjoying a minute, minute's peace of mind, and their disturbances proceed from causes which very little affect the rest of mortals. They're so perpetually alarmed of these impending dangers that they can neither sleep quietly nor have any relish for common pleasures or amusements of life. See, end time speculation can do that. It can have the opposite effect of what it's supposed to have. Instead of being full of hope, it can make us anxious and nervous and afraid rather than living wisely in light of Christ's return by focusing on obedience right? Rather than worrying if the latest news events or advance in technology is another sign of the end. Klein Snodgrass widely said, an understanding of the gospel that does not include the future is not the Christian gospel and is insufficient for dealing with the problem of evil. At the same time, Christians must avoid any fascination with and speculation about the end. What Jesus is not calling us to do is speculate about when his return will be. He is not calling us to constantly wonder if this or that news event has some fulfillment in the Bible that signals when the, exactly when the end will be. That's missing the forest for the trees. So the fact that the facts are that Jesus is returning. You with me? He will come at a time that no one expects. You with me still? And we are to live in light of those facts. So what are we to do? Well, Jesus gives us two options which will be what we look at with the remaining time that we have. It's simple enough, right? What the two choices are for living in this world. Either you could be wise or you could be foolish. Those are the options he gives us. Be wise or be foolish. And each, each one, each posture of life has a corresponding uh, either reward for the wise or judgment for the foolish. So the one we'll spend most of our time on is the first one. What does living wisely in light of the end, look like, okay? In a word, it means to live with constant readiness. It means assuming that Jesus can come back today and living like that's true. Jesus gives two pictures in this text. Did you see them? They have the same message, though, don't they? In the first one, from 35 to 40, you have a servant 
whose master, servants whose master went away to attend a wedding. Okay, This is a picture his audience would be very familiar with because if you went to a wedding during this time, you never knew how long the celebration would be. Okay, And thus, you wouldn't know when you were coming back. Whereas we might go to a wedding and, and have it all planned out and know exactly how long we'll be gone and what day we'll be returning. Those in first century Palestine would go to a wedding and they wouldn't know if it lasted a day or two or a week. So the master tells his servants, I'm going to a wedding. I don't know when I'm coming back. Okay. In the second picture, from verses 42 through 48, you have a master who also went away and he gave stewardship duties to one of his servants while he was gone and he entrusted him with the care of his property until he returned. He too will come back at a time that his servants do not know. So what do we get from these pictures? That to live wisely is to live under the assumption that the master will come back at any time. That's wise living. That he could come back at any time and catch you, so to speak, doing what he called you to do. To live faithfully, to be obedient, to do what you know you ought to be doing regardless of when he comes back. This will cause us to look for Jesus' coming with eager anticipation and not dread. A servant who was slacking off, right, being lazy, or taking advantage of his master's absence will not be eagerly anticipating his return, will he? In fact, his sudden return will have the opposite effect. It would be a fearful sight indeed. Why? Because he'd be catching them doing what they ought not be doing. A proper view of Jesus' return is one that is eager for his coming. It's like a child who knows their grandparent is coming to come and pick them up for the weekend. And so they're dressed and packed and they're ready to go. They go to the front window. Maybe they, they press their nose up against the window looking out for their grandparent's car to come down the street and come into the driveway. They can't wait for the, them to get there. Now, if they aren't ready, if they're not dressed, if they weren't packed, they wouldn't be eagerly anticipating, would they? They'd be nervously rushing around and trying to prepare, hoping that their grandparent maybe will be running behind. The one who is ready, however, can't wait for that arrival. Jesus is saying, I could come at any time, act like it. That, that's the message here. I'm coming at any time, act like it. Be ready. Be doing what you know you should be doing. Be obedient. Keep your hand to the plow. Let me find you busy with faithfulness until I, when I return. Says Jesus in verse 35, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Now you see that stay dressed for action there in verse 35. It's literally, let your loins be girded. Which was an expression used back then for, you know, when men would typically dress in robes. And so they would need to lift up the center part of their robes and tuck it into their belt so that they would be able to run. Okay, that's girding your loins. Now, the other picture is of keeping your lamp always lit so that you can move about in the darkness, which I think is an apt picture of life in a fallen world between advents, isn't it? Now, Jesus is calling for his disciples to always be ready to spring into action, to meet needs, to serve, to go out of their way for people, to sacrifice, to run to help the helpless, to keep the light of the gospel always shining, to chase away the darkness, to be light in this evil age. In other words, to be like him. What is the reward in 35 through 40 for the one who is ready for action and always on the lookout, shining their gospel light and eagerly awaiting their master's return? In verse 37, it's a beatitude. 
that says, you will therefore be blessed by the master himself serving the servants and inviting them to the table and giving them a feast. Now, Jesus modeled and models what it looks like to live in light of the end. And how did he do that? He did that by being a servant himself. Yes? By coming not to be served, but to serve. By not thinking equality with God was a thing to be grasped, but taken on the form of a slave. By bending down and washing the filthy feet of disciples who he knew would run away or deny him at his greatest hour of vulnerability. By taking on an execution stake to propitiate the sins of the world. And it is those servants who serve in light of the end whom he will again serve. So if we're asking how ought we live in light of the end, if we're asking how to live with eager anticipation, it really boils down to being an obedient service who shine, servant who shines the light of the gospel to a world floundering in darkness. Think of all these pictures that combined, okay? All these words Jesus uses, waiting, watching, opening the door, readiness, being blessed. These all point to the fact that it is Jesus, not us, who sets the agenda. He takes the lead. And the faithful servant is an obedient one. We are at his mercy, serving at his whims. We do not set the agenda for what it looks like to be a disciple. He does. So since he is the master and we his servants, our task isn't to come up with our own ways of following him, is it? Ours is simple, obedience to what he's commanded. That's how you live wisely. So we serve, we look for needs, we meet needs. So we do the menial, the difficult, the servile, the unglamorous, and we do it constantly because who knows when the master's going to come back. He's like a thief in the night. That's what he says. You never know he's coming. If you knew a thief was coming, you'd be constantly ready and vigilant, wouldn't you? You'd be, some of y'all be sitting on your porch in a rocking chair with a shotgun across your lap, right? If you knew, you'd stay ready, you'd stay vigilant, you would not have to get ready. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. There's an old story about a couple, I don't know if it's true, but there's a couple in New York, one morning they woke up to find that their Lexus had been stolen, okay? It just seemed like it vanished in thin air. Well, you know, a few days later they woke up and it was back in the driveway, and it was in the same condition that it was in when it was stolen. Inside the car were the keys and a note from the thief who apologized for the inconvenience. They just needed the car for a few days. Here's it back. And they said, you know, with this note, they said, here's a couple theater tickets as a token of my appreciation and thanks uh, for the robbery. Okay? <laughs> Thank you for letting me borrow your car. Here's a couple tickets. And so... This couple were pleased, and they took the tickets, they went to the theater, and they came back, and all their possessions were gone. They'd been robbed. The robber used the occasion of their going to the theater to freely rob their house because they knew it would be unoccupied, <laughs> and that the couple would be tied up at the theater for several hours. Now, if they had known the robber was coming, would they have gone to the show? No, they would have been ready, and that's the point Jesus is making, right? You've got to be ready because the Son of Man is coming like a thief in the night, and you aren't sure when that will be, so assume it's going to be at any time. You won't have time to prepare. So this posture will have implications for how we live, won't it? 
What, what will we be doing if Jesus comes tonight or tomorrow? What will we want him to see us prioritizing and living for? You know, Jonathan Edwards, when he was only 19 years old, he wrote a series of resolutions that he would recite every week. And among them were these. He said, resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. This is thinking wisely, isn't it? To ask ourselves that if Jesus were coming back tonight, what would we want him to see in us? Obedience or disobedience? Loving the weakest among us or ignoring the weakest among us? Will you be found hating sin or holding on to sin? Are you involved in actions, thoughts, and attitudes that would not make sense if it were the last hour of your life? Do you see? Will we be found to be wise stewards taking the gospel that we have been entrusted with to those who don't know it? Or will we be found hoarding the gospel to ourselves? Will we serve, give, and go? Or will we be desire to be served, be selfish, and stay? The friend, my friend, to live wisely in light of Jesus' return is to be actively obedient shining our light to our community and world that is plunged in darkness of sin and foolish thinking and living. We can't wait to be obedient. We can't put off faithfulness, nor can we claim to be ignorant on what Jesus requires. You all have Bibles, yes? Probably multiple copies. You've sat through hundreds of sermons, perhaps. We know what Jesus is calling to us. We can't say we didn't know what to do. James says in his letter, for the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it for him, it is sin. James says the sin of omission is as egregious as the sin of commission. In light of our text, standing before Jesus and claiming that we didn't know what we were supposed to do in response to the gospel of grace, it won't wash. He might come at any time. If he comes tonight or tomorrow or next week, will we say, I didn't know what you wanted me to be doing while you were gone? Can any of us make that claim? Now, we don't know what Jesus would have us doing in light of the redemption he's given us. Is his word not clear? This is why your pastors, your elders' mission is to gather you together like we're doing right now, like we did in Sunday school, so that we could tell you what the Word says, and then you could go out into the world and be faithful and obedient to Christ. We're not trying to call you here so that your primary obedience and service happens in this building for one day a week. <laughs> why? Because Jesus might come back on a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Friday, or a Saturday, and we don't want him finding you not about his business, just as I didn't know what I was supposed to do won't be valid excuse, neither will I'm waiting on it to be Sunday to serve and obey. We aren't to be Sunday-only Christians, my friend. We're to be faithful servants every day of the week, wherein we are constantly ready and alert, and in all places to serve, meet needs, and shine the gospel lamp. Do you see but see, also, we shouldn't put off obedience because we're busy doing things that have no transcendent value either. 
See, we say we'll be obedience once. Have you done this? I bet you've done this. I've done this. We'll be obedient once this or that is done. Once our schedule clears up. Once we aren't so busy. Once we achieve this or that goal. Once we are finished with this or that project. Once we see our kids off and our empty nesters. Once we retire. Once we, once we, once we. If you delay obedience, there's little chance you will ever get around to it. And we think once we aren't so busy, we'll be more faithful. <laughs> we'll never find ourselves not busy. Because we've grown accustomed, even addicted to busyness, and we'll always find something else to fill that void when it pops up. We'll always find reasons to delay obedience, and Satan likes that. As Alistair Begg said, the the devil's favorite word is tomorrow. Must be careful that we aren't being lulled into sleep, into rote religion, or unduly wrapped up in the cares of this world. Because then what will we say when Jesus returns and we're living lives and busy doing things that are indistinguishable from our unbelieving neighbors and and thus have allowed these things to push obedience and busyness for the kingdom to the fringes of our lives? What will we do when the master returns and we have assumed he won't be coming back anytime soon? And our presumption, as use our presumption as an opportunity to indulge ourselves. Will he call us wise? Would his return be a happy occasion? Or will we be dismayed for him to find us asleep and unprepared, given too much to the cares of this world? Perhaps you remember when our friend Christian from the Pilgrim's Progress, Tim and Hopeful, were nearing the end of their journey to the celestial city. They had to pass through a place called the Enchanted Ground. It was called this because the ground made people who passed through it drowsy. And rumor had it, if you fell asleep in the Enchanted Ground, you never woke up. Well, further, the Enchanted Ground hid three dangers that were personified. Simple, sloth, and presumption. In other words, complacency, laziness, and presuming upon salvation to the point that it is an occasion for sin. And there's a reason why it lay at the end of the journey to the celestial city, because the enemy figures the pilgrim will be weary from travels and want to sleep. And many did. See, when Christian was going through Vanity Fair, you've heard me talk about Vanity Fair, we can look at that, right, Vanity Fair, and go, yeah, those are tempting things, but they ought to be resisted. But when do we think of sloth and complacency as things to watch out for and fight against? When do we see the weariness of living in a fallen world can be an occasion to delay obedience? Are we being lulled to sleep in the enchanted ground? See, this is the kind of insidiousness of delayed obedience. Everything you have going on that is delaying or preventing your obedience is probably something that you can justify. It's probably something we have good reasons to be doing. It's probably even something that we can call good. But is it the best? Is what we're busy doing things that we would want Jesus to catch us doing? Christian, you must be ready. You must live in light of the end. Understand, this text from Jesus isn't supposed to alarm you if you're a Christian. It's supposed to call you to action. 
And that's what it's doing. It's supposed to give you hope to cure your fears of investing too much into the kingdom, of giving yourself too much to Christ's commands, of the cost on earth of faithfully following your Lord. He's saying, don't be afraid to live with radical obedience. Don't be afraid of living for the end. Don't be afraid of investing in heavenly treasure instead of earthly treasure because you will be blessed. You will be rewarded. Your standing before me at the end of the age will be a happy time where I'll claim you as my own. Live wisely. It's a call to action. Seth Snodgrass, the wise and faithful Christian, is the one who understands the significance of the end and actively serves whether the time is long or short. See, it is having a a constant view of the end that makes Christian ethics and Christ-centered obedience even make any sense. Do you realize this? If time wasn't going anywhere, or if if we're heading to an end wherein there wasn't waiting a conquering Christ who vindicates and sets everything to right, doing what Jesus calls us to do doesn't make any sense. But why would we be selfless in a selfish world if we wouldn't be first in the kingdom in the end? Why would we die to self on earth and take up a cross if we weren't going to live forever? Why would we forsake hoarding treasures on earth like all of our peers if there weren't treasures in heaven that moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal? Why endure hardships and pains knowing they're there for a purpose if there isn't a vindicating Christ that will do away with tears? Why be devoted to self-giving other-focused, sacrificial love if we don't have a Christ who modeled and called for such a disposition. But if there's another world to come, Jesus' ethic, which the world calls folly, is the only thing that actually makes sense. Living for this world when there's one to come, that's folly. We know, don't we, that this world doesn't satisfy? Did you know that? It doesn't satisfy, not truly, not really, not fully. We know this innately, I think. We we just run from thing to thing, from activity to activity, from product to product, and we're just as empty as when we started. We're living for this world, but the irony is when we live for this world, you really don't get this world, and you don't get the next either. As C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it, let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Do you see, beloved of God, That living for the next world is the only thing that makes sense. Do you see that? I need you to see that. Do you believe? Let's do a little participation, okay? And I won't ask for it again for the rest of the time, all right? I promise. Do you believe that Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead? Do you believe that he can return at any time like a thief in the night? Do you believe that you, what you do in this life speaks to what you think about these truths? Do you believe that you should strive to obey Christ in light of the forgiveness and grace and redemption he offers via his broken body and spilled blood? Then are you living in such a way that if he came back today, he would see you being about his business? 
like a wise servant or a good steward. You know, I mentioned our friend C.S. Lewis a second ago, and you probably know him best from Chronicles of Narnia series, right? And you probably know some of the characters in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, even if you haven't read them or haven't read them in a while. Uh, one of the characters you may not know is a character named Reepicheep. He's a mouse. Reepicheep has one destination in mind. One. Aslan's country. That's all he wants. That's the only place he wants to go. Every other character has something they want to do or somewhere they want to go, uh, something they want to accomplish, but Reepicheep just wants to be with Aslan. That's all he wants. He didn't care about riches. He didn't care about gold. He didn't care about power. He just wants Aslan. And his goal of getting to Aslan's country causes him to live differently than those around him from how he treats people to how he views the world. And nothing will stop Reepicheep from living for the next world or from reaching it. At one point, he says this, My own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Here in a, a work of fiction, Lewis shows us what Jesus is saying in our text. And Lewis, in fact, in one of his letters said, anyone in our world who devotes his whole life to seeking heaven will be like Reepicheep. So let me ask you, Christian. Christian, are you living for the end? Are you like a servant who is always ready for their master's return? Are you like a wise steward who will be found by their master to be stewarding what he has entrusted them with? Are you striving towards obedience in light of the gospel of grace? That's all he's calling for. He's not calling for you to be perfect or never sin. Are you striving towards obedience in light of the gospel? Are you prioritizing the kingdom of Christ? Are you prepared? Should Jesus close out the age today or tomorrow, or next month? Are you dressed for action? Is your light burning for others to see? Take this text as a call from our Lord to return to center, to live for the age to come, to be ready, to cease delaying obedience, to cease prioritizing other things over the kingdom, to be like Reepicheep, be like that little mouse, wanting supremely to be in your Lord's presence and living with that as your singular goal. But there's another way besides the wise way to live in light of the end, isn't there? There's the wise way, which is the way every Christian should live. But there's also the foolish way, which is the way those who don't know Jesus live. The way the unbeliever lives. This is especially highlighted in the parable of 42 through 48. Jesus presents to us the wise steward, wise steward in 42 and 43. But then he shows us three types of foolish living in 44 through 48. Just as the promised blessing of wise living were meant to woo us to faithfulness, these threats of punishment are meant to warn the unbeliever to cease their running and come to Christ. There are three ways Jesus gives of being foolish in light of his return. Did you see it? The first is to take advantage of the perceived delay of the master in order to be self-indulgent. This person, they're not concerned with the master's return. They live as if his return doesn't matter at all. They get drunk 
They abuse others. They indulge and indulge and indulge. They are eating and drinking, for tomorrow they die, and then who cares? This is the life of the hedonists. Drunkenness and beating slaves, you understand, are traditional descriptions of someone who has an uncontrolled life. That's this person. There's no striving to obey Jesus because they don't know him. They don't care what he says. They aren't trying to be faithful. They just do as they please. You know, there are many today who claim to the name of Christ and they live like this foolish man. They don't care about obedience. They aren't trying to do what Jesus said. They're abusing grace and assuming they could do as they wish because they give no thought of Jesus' return at all. The Bible says this person is unconverted. Someone who claims to know Jesus and doesn't care what he said and isn't trying to obey him at all, what can we say besides they don't know him? And what will this foolish steward's reward be? It's the opposite of the blessing of the wise one. Jesus says the master will come and catch them and will cut them to pieces. That's a striking word, isn't it? Isn't that harsh? Well, Jesus is using hyperbole to arrest our attention. Does he have your attention? See, if you're unconverted, it, would, it should have your attention because this could be your fate if you don't turn to Christ. If you're a believer, this should have your attention because there are people that you know and you see all of the time who this is their fate. But they don't know it. Would you tell them? Jesus is grabbing our attention and he's picturing for us total rejection. Daryl Box says this is not a matter of dismissal or demotion, but departure. This person will not share in the kingdom of God, but they will be cast out. And the second fool is one who willfully disobeyed. He knew his master's will. He just didn't get ready or act according to his will. He's unconcerned with his master's instructions. He knows he should obey, but he doesn't. He too will be rejected. And then there's a fool, third fool. He's ignorant. He doesn't know what his master requires, so he didn't do it. But he too will be rejected. But he'll be ju judged according to his knowledge because, says Jesus, everyone to whom much is given of him much will be required. Now, I know that we live in an age where judgment isn't allowed. Isn't that true? <laughs> this is not allowed. You just can't do it. Judgment is to be rejected. And, and messages like the one I'm preaching right now are a bummer. Can't we just talk about rainbows and unicorns and puppy kisses? You know, I would love to, but that's not what this text is calling for. This message from Jesus is very serious. And I would be counted among the ones who should be beaten if I didn't warn you now of the Lord's impending return. Some of you here may be a foolish servant. Some of you may be pushing off allegiance to Jesus for all kinds of different reasons. And you think that you have all this time to decide because you don't think you will either die anytime soon or that Jesus will return anytime soon. This is foolish. What if he does? What if he comes back tonight? Can he come back tonight? What if he comes back tonight? What is it that you will say to him? See, here's the thing, right? None of us can be counted among the ignorant. All of us know the gospel, and thus we'll be judged based on this knowledge. And if you know the gospel, and you hear of the beauty and love of Jesus, and you know that he can return in a moment's notice, why are you delaying? What is it that you're waiting for? 
Because you may very well stand before him tonight and account for your life. And then what will you say? Most importantly, what will he say? I beg you, my unbelieving friend, you delay no longer. Go to Jesus. He is altogether lovely. He wishes not for you to either be cut into pieces or counted with the unfaithful or even beaten severely or lightly. He wishes for you to begin right now to live for him, to give him your allegiance, to worship him gladly and serve him and love him. If he didn't wish that, he would never have come in the first advent and taken your sins upon his shoulders. Would you go to him? Whatever is holding you back, whatever you love too much in this world that you're afraid to lose, it doesn't compare to the beauty and wholeness found in Jesus. Can I mention Pilgrim's Progress once more? You know, early in the book, Christian has a burden on his back. And he wants more than anything to get rid of that burden. As as he was laboring under this burden, he met this man, and his name was Worldly Wiseman who asked Christian, how did you come to know that you had that burden in the first place? And Christian held up the Bible and said, I read it in this book. And he also said that a man named Evangelist, Christian is telling worldly wise men, I, I met a man named Evangelist, and he told me to go to the wicked gate to, to get rid of this burden, because from there I, I would be led to a cross and one who would take the burden upon himself. The worldly wise men said, you don't need to do all that. You don't need to go through all, you don't need to go to the wicked gate. You, you don't need to do anything uncomfortable at all. But then he, he would have kept his burden for all time, wouldn't he? Bunyan is telling us what Scripture is telling us, which is that there is no place to remove that burden that you feel than at the foot of the cross of Christ. Would you go there? Jesus says to be ready. But if we aren't converted, then we aren't ready. Can I ask one more time, are you ready for Jesus' return? Christian, are you living in light of eternity? Do you share any of the characteristics with the foolish stewards? Are you living with an end in view? Cling to Christ today and live henceforth every day with eternity in view. And if you who haven't given Jesus your life and allegiance, are you living in light of eternity? If you were, you wouldn't be unconverted, right? Delay no longer. If Jesus tarries and doesn't return today, we know the fragility of life, that it can end at any time. Are you prepared to stand before this Jesus? He would have you come to him as one who is ready and knew him as their savior rather than as your judge. He doesn't want to be your judge. He wants to be your savior. Would you call on him right now? Will you repent and believe on him and cling to him henceforth? Now, I know this. No matter who you are, you are not here today by accident. This is a divine appointment. Hear and see what Jesus says because this is eternally important. This is serious business, isn't it? We're talking about eternity here. Would you go to Jesus again or for the first time and live in light of eternity? The words of John Owen will serve as a fitting conclusion. Let me read you this from John Owen, then we'll pray. This is somewhat of the word which he now speaks unto you, says Owen. Will, why will ye die? 
Why will you perish? Why will you not have compassion on your own souls? Can your hearts endure or can your hands be strong in the day of wrath that is approaching? Look unto me, says Jesus, and be saved. Come unto me and I will ease you of all sins, sorrows, fears, and burdens and give rest to your souls. Come, I entreat you. Lay aside all procrastinations, all delays. Put me off no more. Eternity lies at the door. Do not so hate me as that you will rather perish than accept of deliverance by me.